Hey there, my name is Dean Leverton and I'm the host of Upstanders, a stand-up podcast series. We have conversations with the dream chasers and change makers who deserve to be heard. In this episode, I chat with Adina Bankier-Karp, who is an inspiring teacher and thought leader. She is an incredible thinker, she asks incisive questions, and she encourages deep critical thought. She just oozes intelligence, and she struck me as being so smart on so many occasions throughout this episode. I've no doubt you'll leave this episode asking yourselves many questions and inspired to learn more and think deeper. We spoke about her vision for our community, her passion and touching personal story about organ donation, and how she teaches her children empathy and compassion. You may hear a tram or two pass by in the background as we chatted from the stand-up offices on busy Glenferry Road, but I have no doubt that her messages and lessons will ring louder than any background noise. So I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did in touring. Adina Bankikarp, welcome to the stand-up podcast. Thank you for having me. We were discussing just before we started recording that you taught me in year eight and year nine. Yes. I have very fond memories. JS, I think it was. Absolutely. Um, and... I, I do recall that you, and we talk, spoke a little about teaching philosophies before we started recording. Do you have an education philosophy that guides the way you teach and why you teach? I can think of a couple of people who've um, very profoundly influenced me. Um, I don't like to reduce them to sound bites, but um, Professor Nahama Leibowitz, um, who, who taught a wide range of people, uh, really, I think, uh, reintroduced Tanakh into Jewish studies at a time where I think people were only exclusively focusing on Gemara. So that's a real, real transformation. Mm. And in addition, also bringing women into um, elite learning. Yeah. Um, and her, her main, one of her main messages was that um, the experience of Jewish studies, yes, it might be about knowledge, it might be about skills, but fundamentally a person should emerge from that saying that was interesting. Mm. You know? And if that was interesting becomes their, the, the, the impression with which they emerge, the other stuff can always come later. Right. Um, I don't see it as my goal as a Jewish studies teacher to fill up an empty bucket. Um, okay. God forbid. I yeah. <laughs> look at any of my students as empty buckets and I don't think they look at themselves in that way either. Unfortunately, curriculum sometimes and assessment uh, dictates an empty bucket philosophy, particularly a, a, a regurgitation of the bucket yeah. at a certain stage. But I really do see um, my role as facilitating um, cultivating curiosity yeah. um, and getting people excited about the idea of learning so that, um, you know, uh, our schooling, although at the time when someone's in school, it might feel like it's, you know, the rest of their life. Um, schooling is a very small percentage, formal mm. Jewish studies schooling is a very small percentage of a person's lifespan. And I think that if they can emerge saying that was interesting, the chance that they uh, might explore that later, develop yeah. that, personalise that as an adult, and um, afford those opportunities for their children. I think that that's the ultimate aim. That's, I think the core aim is that yeah. it should be interesting. Um, and we spoke earlier about Michael Rosenack's idea that um, a, an, effect, an ex excellent Jewish studies teacher should really find that balance between relevance and authenticity. And I hope that with um, at least where I'm coming from, from a modern Orthodox perspective, um, that, Orthodox, that um, authenticity and relevance can come in one experience. Yeah, I, I, that's really interesting you say that because... I heard a speaker the other day talk about the importance uh, of his seminars that he gives uh, being entertaining above all else because then the lessons that he tries to elicit throughout them are more memorable. 
because people associate their emotional um, enjoyment levels with a particular memory of of a more you know content based concept. And so it's interesting you say that you know interest and intrigue is, and curiosity is at the centre because then the education lessons can kind of come hmm. from that. And yeah, I, th- I think as a, as a teacher and a parent, everyone knows that. Um, when you're busy having fun, you don't realise you're learning. Mm. But I actually don't like using that as a cheap trick. Yeah. I'd prefer someone come out saying, I'm troubled, I'm provoked, I'm inflamed, I'm incensed, right. um, I'm curious. Um, edutainment is not my core principle. Yeah. If it happens to be engaging and entertaining, fantastic. But um, that's not the main message. Awesome. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that's a, that's a good repudiation of the idea that I previously held and I, one that I'm going to take to with me in the future now. <laughs> Look, uh, I mean, you, you can't not be engaging. You can't yeah. forgive the double negative. You can't not be entertaining. But if that is your core message, yeah, that's then then yeah. give a TED talk yeah. and everyone walks away saying, I'm now intellectually tickled and I can go back to my yeah, yeah, yeah. coffee and my life. Um, but if, you want but to it, agitate a little more? Sort yeah. Of put, a splinter, their... put a proverbial splinter under their skin so they now yeah. walk away saying, I had never... Um, you know, one of the most profound moments in my first year of teaching was I had a... Double JS on a Friday with 28 kids in the classroom back in the 400s. And I remember a kid looking up and he slammed his hands down on the desk and he was enraged. He had a you know, really crimson face. And he said, who is responsible for me having been denied this up until this point in my life? No way. And I walked out saying, you know, if I could, if I could have bottled that or, or yeah. recorded that, you know, you want that. Now, I don't mean in the shallow FOMO sense, but yeah. the sense of what... This is so valuable to me that not having known that to me, had I, you know, been able to do that self-reflexive narration, yeah, I've been deprived not knowing that, yeah. and I feel now that that's something that I, I'm not a, a, entitled to, mm. and that, that that's good for me. Yeah, that's cool. You know, and that, so trying to elicit that out of students is gold. Ultimate. Yeah. yeah. So, as I've said to some other guests before, I do very robust research for these for these interviews, including, but not limited to, um, uh, looking at. Facebook pages, Twitter profiles, all that sort of stuff. And one thing I did come across, which I, I want to read quickly that you posted or shared at least, um, it must have been a couple of weeks ago now, and then I want to get your thoughts on why you shared it and a bit of the philosophy behind that. So it's this image um, from, uh, from the paper, and it's a short little excerpt that I'm going to read here. And, uh, and it, was, it was submitted by some guy from Ashburn, and I won't say his name, and this is what he said. He said, we attended the Big Bash game at the MCG on Sunday night, our whole family, including three young children, was screened airport style. Um, for Edward, our four-year-old, it's his, it was his first Big Bash game, and he clearly isn't up with the latest terrorism precautions. A burly security guy doing the body scan crouched down and held at his arms to demonstrate the search position. So naturally, Edward moved in and gave him a big hug. Trying to hold back laughter, the security guard held his arms out again and got a second hug, then a third hug. Makes you wonder how it ever came to this, that going to, ever came to this going to a cricket match. Nobody's born to hate. It's something we are taught. And I guess this is an extension of, again, that education, idea, the, the ideas that are on tap into it in your mind. What is it, firstly, about this piece that resonates you? Is there something about the innocence of a child or uh, the ability of education to help shape um, one way or the other, love or hate or compassion or empathy? What is it about that story that resonated? I think post 9-11... And I'm old enough to be able to say this. I remember going through airports and mm. carrying all sorts of things yeah. in my hand luggage. Um, I remember in Hebrew, I mean, in Hebrew, you used to be able to walk in with a bag. You know? 
Um, I remember a life without metal detectors. Mm. Um, you know, I was recently over the summer. We were on a trip to Israel. We went through, um, we went through Asia, and we had full body scans. There was a man with a baby who had to hand me his baby because he couldn't hold his baby for a body scan. I mean, the insanity of yeah. of where we're at. Um, we, you know, maybe f I think by necessity we're in a, a surveillance world. You know, the Patriot Act went through quite rapidly post 9 11, and mm -hmm. we're in a world where we have um, d accepted or relinquished um, a lot of our safety, not safety, our, our um, privacy, um, so that we can be secure. Um, I think that we have um, we've done it because we want to be safe more than anything else, we want to be safe. Um, but at the same time, it's sad. Mm. It's sad that we have to be scrutinised. It's scared, sad that we need to um, have such a high level of surveillance. And when a child raises his hands and thinks in all beautiful innocence that mm. the guy just wants a hug, um, it's beautiful. Mm. Um, our, our stranger danger means that, you know, you know, your generation will not be letting your kids walk to school. Yeah. You're going to drop them at the gate and you're going to be, they're going to have a phone inside so that they can text you from their classroom. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I went to school by tram. I, I went, you know, Yavna was in Armidale. We took the 69 tram from East St Kilda. Mm. I had friends, we were on the tram for, 40, you know, 45, 50 minutes on our own. That's like a third off today. Yeah. You know, Jewish parents, my goodness, you know, we're, we're helicopter parents, we're surveillance parents, <laughs> and they need a phone inside the school just in case something causes offence <laughs> so that our poor, unresilient children, surprise, surprise, can call us, yeah. you know. It's, it's uh, so I guess that, that for me, that little article, and I mean, and I, I don't post that often on Model Facebook. But um, I just thought it, it disrupted. I said before about putting the splinter under the skin mm. and getting people thinking. The normal track, had you covered the bottom of the article, and I probably would have done that in a year eight class, I would have folded over the bottom. Mm. You know, the man asks the boy to put his hands up. And, you know, my question to a year eight class, had you been in that class, would have been, what do you think the end of the story is? Mm. And the, the track that was encouraged in the piece is that, you know, he passed through security or they found something metal or and confiscated it and da-da-da-da-da. That's the storyline. That's the storyline. But what disrupts it is this act of love. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are much more profound things that hopefully I've posted over the years, no. but I thought it was a very, I thought it was a, it was a sweet piece because I think it, it stops us on that track, you know, of raising our hands and being scrutinised. Yeah. I don't know what it is about my face. I must be highly suspicious, but the amount of times with my family, I am taken aside for a <laughs> random security check. You know, my mother and I joke that, yeah, it's not, it's not random. It's not random. The amount of drug tests and they vacuum my wrists. Um, and the, I don't know what they're looking you for. You don't strike me as, I, I, you know, as, I, I said to, as risky. I, I said to, I, we, we went to Tasmania for the day. My mother was giving an oration there for the Human Genetic Society. And I said to my husband, to my brother, we were walking together, I said, five bucks that they randomly take me aside. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, just watch this. Excuse me, miss, can you please come to the side? And I said, I said to him, I said, what is it? <laughs> you get an answer. I digress. You said it's random. I'm like, <laughs> sure. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because uh, the thing that I'm... Um, I loved when I when I read about that and that I uh, really treasure about being able to speak to an educator about it is if we subscribe to the belief that children are innately innocent or innately loving and caring in a hyper-surveillant hyper world hmm. and, and uh, a world filled of cynicism, how do we better sustain and retain the love and compassion in young people? so that they don't go into the world and just become cynical. Rupert Murdoch had a wonderful piece in the paper 
quite a few years ago and you spoke about the importance of disruption and I don't speak about it in a corporate sense. In um, the, one of my orthodox bubbles, uh, we have an error of, and children grow up not realising that you really shouldn't carry on Shabbat and that through a, a legal, legitimate, but legal loophole, we've managed to create a, a, a private space that's the size of Caulfield <laughs> that they can walk in. And therefore, we take our kids away at least once a year to a place without an error of, and they go through the process of taking their stuff out of their pockets and walking in an area outside so that they can actually reclaim their understanding mm. of that. I think Shabbat is a disruption from the week. It cuts, it's a circuit breaker that, you know, you don't have to have your phone. You don't have to work. You don't have to. I can take off my glasses because everyone I'm seeing is within a metre or two. Mm. I'm not having to, you know. Yeah. And in the same way, I think disruption is a very important thing. Uh, I don't mean deconstruction in the in the leftist sense of reading articles backward from the final word to the front word to sort of, you know, in that literary uh disruption sense or dis deconstruction sense but I think we have to critique our world now that doesn't mean criticize but can you see that camera you know when I was a child we didn't have that camera why do you think they have it and wouldn't it be you know what kind of world can we imagine there might be in the future where such a camera is not needed mm. um, you know that the concept of Mashiach in a religious sense has its purpose but I think in a in a less theological sense the concept of Mashiach is hoping for a better, more perfect, less damaged tomorrow. Mm. Um, and I think that any environmentalist who goes on to, into things saying the world is only going to get worse rather than this is where it is, but this is where it could be, right? Having that disruption, having that capacity to rise above the way people are thinking now mm. and contemplate something grander is a wonderful raison d'etre. So is it almost... Um, developing among young people the ability to critique the cynicism itself and even though there's a hyper cynical world if you teach the ability to be critical and curious and and analytical then you can people can go into the world to see the cynicism and be like why is that cynicism that way or do we need that or can I rise above that um look you know that I was reading a book by George Steiner called Real Presences. It's a book that you have to read sitting up. It's not an airport-style novel. It's quite <laughs> cerebral. And he basically said that, you know, the media today, we digest. We just accept. I mean, we are a little bit suspicious of where it's coming from, but once it's a person we like, we just accept. Mm. Um, I don't think that we say, why would a person like that think like that? And could it be different? Yeah. Um, it's, it's an interesting world, and I know I speak in broad strokes and generalisations, but um, I have this on fairly good anecdotal evidence from a lot of my friends who, you know, th there's quite a relief that comes when one digests or receives their news from social media. Because you can go to the station, the person, the bubble of your yeah. choosing, and reinforce your own way of seeing things Absolutely. by only receiving that kind of feed. Um, a little while ago, I liked on Facebook almost every Jewish organisation that I could possibly mm. find in Melbourne so that I, when something big happens, I can find out what a range of people are saying. Now, that's not to say that I necessarily agree with it, but um, it forces me to think outside of my bubble or consider that there exists something else. Now, I don't know many people out of my peer group and out of the students that I teach who, when something happens, will just as quickly go to Haaretz and J-Post, mm. who will just as quickly go to the age as the Australian. Mm. I like this. This is my comfort zone. It yeah. makes me feel good about myself. Um, you know, when I was growing up, and that's a very long time ago, we had three or four TV stations, two or three papers. Was it? 
you yeah. know, those were, that was it. Yeah. Um, today, there's so many, you know, there's people who even go around the, the media that um, the popular media to go to an alternative source, which means that we don't necessarily need to disrupt. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the, the dis, that um, disrupting my way of thinking to consider another alternative is a profound thing. Um, my kids and I, out of the many things we do for pleasure outside of working hours, is, um, we, we, learn, um, we learn Mishnah together. And, the, you know, it, it irritates them that when a question is asked, that 45 opinions will be, you know, could be this way, could be that way, could be that way. And at the beginning, when they didn't actually realise the psychology of the way the, the architecture of the oral law, they were like, just give me the answer. <laughs> and I was like, but don't you realise that, um, and, and this is where I see such a, a space, at least in our classical sacred literature, um, space for alternative ways of seeing. We quote the opinions that we don't go with. Mm. You know, we don't have a list of the ingredients that we haven't put in. Yeah. I mean, we do. This is not doesn't have gluten and it doesn't have nuts. <laughs> it might have a trace of, 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 of milk. I mean, we sometimes do that for fear of being sued. But the interesting thing about, um, you know, about literature, um, in a, you know, Jewish literature, and I guess that's what another thing that I love about um, Jewish studies, is that it's not this is the line and this is the way to see it. Look at the range of different views. Isn't it awesome that this poor guy, this poor Rabbi Yehuda, 90% of the time in the Mishnah, we don't go with his philosophy, mm. but he's always there with his views. <laughs> and we've recorded and we've allowed an alternative view to be placed in there so that we're not monolithic. Mm. That's not the way we were designed. Yeah. That's the way I see it. Yeah. I think it's so interesting uh, what you said. It's so relevant now as well with maybe just the division in politics as well with the idea of reinforcement of our existing biases uh, with the media because that's what everyone does you know especially elections come and we just read what we want to read and then we go and argue the points that we've read and the other person you're arguing against is arguing the points they read and mm. you know there's never a meeting ground because everyone's feeding off different information and different facts and i think it just feeds into the division i think that's one of one of the risks and a, a quick anecdote um, of my own is I recently, similarly, I wanted to make sure that I was uh, understanding what other people were saying to the extent that I liked this page that I completely disagree with, um, but I liked it anyway to make sure that I could read what they were saying so that if I wanted to refute or anything, I at least knew that I saw it coming from the source. Mm -hmm. And someone who agreed with me sent me a message on Facebook being like, it says that you like this page, are you sure you want to be seen to be endorsing that? And I said, Firstly, <laughs> let's take it with a grain of salt what liking on Facebook does, you know, as an, as an endorsement. But secondly, like, this is what we should be doing. We should be showing that we have an, an interest in what other people are saying rather than just turning a blind eye to, to mm -hmm. the other opinions. So I like that you've definitely reinforced that. I do want to ask you, um, speaking, and, and that was, you know, we talked about Jewish community organisations and making sure that we're hearing these different opinions. You're now writing a PhD about Jewish continuity. Uh, you've been... Uh, promoting the the Gen 17 survey about the Jewish community coming out, I want to ask you, and, and in a message that you sent to a few of us about filling out that survey, you said that it's going to effectively enable creative planning, programming, and dreaming. Hmm. I want to ask you about what is your dream or vision for our community? <laughs> give me a few years to finish my thesis <laughs> and I'll be able to give you the conclusion. I want to get the inside word the before inside the word. thesis comes um, out. Look... There were two reasons why I started my research with a pilot program. Number one, because Donald Rumsfeld once said, I'm not worried about the known unknown, I'm worried about the unknown unknowns. Because if we don't know that we don't know something, right. then it's um, much more likely to come back and bite us. 
Um, so, I mean, I know my world, which is one of many subgroups within a very, very diverse community. And you'll know that there's, you have insight into other people's worlds if they're personal friends, because you've got one person, one anecdote. But um, I, I, I knew, you know, the world of my students, the world of my family, and that's really where it stopped. So I started the process with an interview. Community leader, highly visible figure, easily found in a Google search, um, and sort of common shoppers table knowledge that this is a person mm. who's a leader, and then said to her, um, I'd love to get a spread of opinions across the community, as diverse, contained, but as diverse as possible. She recommended someone who recommended someone else. And I got to interview 20, showed this young Whoa. man who, the spread of people and said, who, which voices are missing? And he said, well, you pretty much covered them. And what that gave me a chance to do, Dean, which was magnificent, was over a period, a very short period of time, was to hear from ultra-Orthodox, modern Orthodox, conservative, reform, Jewish humanist, a range of philanthropy organisations, security, youth, older people, um, and everything in between. And what was really magnificent was, you know, and they had all had different views on Israel, um, depending on their age, of course, gender, I think religious background, you could sort of go through it from a lot mm. of different angles. And um, I think all of them have, uh, the final question that I gave all of them was, um, if it wasn't a matter of money, as in if I had a check in, checkbook in the back pocket, what would you, what, what's missing that would transform our community? And it's, it, it allows well, people to... You phrased to the question much better than I have phrased it. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. That's essentially the question that I... You know, and, and I think that, you know, when I, when I... And I'm not being cowardly when I say I can only talk about my data, I can't talk about myself. I have my own dreams. I have my dreams for my children. I have my dreams for my family, for my students. I don't think they realise I pray for them. Not in a condescending way, but mm. that, you know, that life will be good to them and that their dreams won't be um, watered by those life obstacles that sometimes catch us up. And, um, but I think that, I think that, you know, there's a couple of things. Let's go with Maslow. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, he couldn't help his Jewishness. He couldn't help his background. And I think that that really much, that impacted upon um, his way of saying things. I think number one, as just a basic, because without it, everything else can't be possible. Um, safety and security. Um, you know, I, I watched Malcolm Turnbull, Turnbull with his kippah on, in Central Shul online. I didn't get to go. Um, and, and I watched him talk about how warm and how comfortable he felt with the mishpocha in his local shul. Yes, I saw that as well. And it, it just, it struck me in that stirring pre-1967 Zionism that was just stirring up within me um, that um, we're very lucky. We're living at a time in history, you know, the Jewish people have been around for 3,300 years and there have been times where it was just so hard to be a Jew. It was so terrifying. Our, our prospects were so limiting. It's just, you know, the whim of whichever leader who decided to expel us or keep us, extort us or squeeze it out of us. And we're living in a place here where he stood up and said, Australian jury is remarkable and how lucky we are. And it's not to do with how clever we are. We're just at this particular point in our, in our very, very expansive history. We're living on a, under a compassionate government. And male or female, or perhaps, you know, I'll, I'll grumble about gender another time, but, you know, I, I don't think that anyone would say, what a shame that you're Jewish, Dean. There was so much you could have done with that great mind of yours. Mm. You know, we can do anything. It's not a barrier. A hundred, what, at five? All, yeah. yeah, not at all. I mean, five out of 150 um, House of Reps are Jewish, mm. which is a, a high percentage. Good percentage, yeah. Um, you know, I, representation. I, I look at my shul and I look at the professions that are represented there. We're, we're very, very lucky. Mm. Um, so on a level of safety and security, I, I hope 
I hope that that doesn't change. Can I ask you, and I share that completely, and just for the benefit of our listeners, this is, we're talking the day after Netanyahu visited yes. um, Australia and spoke with Turnbull at Mariah and at, a, at Central Shul and was, and, yes. and, and so it's, um, it definitely, I watched those speeches and again, it filled me with pride, the same sense of, geez, haven't we come far? Um, and well, how lucky we are to be living in this time. And I mean, you know, I think, you know, leaving politics aside, I know there are people who have issues with Netanyahu personally and the government, but I think, you know, whether we like it or not, as far as everyone else is concerned outside of the Jewish community, he's the leader of the Jewish people. Mm. He's not the leader of the Jewish state. Mm. He's the leader of the Jewish people. And, and whether we like it or not, he represents um, us. And by him coming and being so warmly received, I think that... Um, you know, my grandparents used to always say, whenever anything happened in the news, they'd say, is it good for the Jews or is it bad for the Jews? Yeah, That's yeah. all they wanted to Still know. Here, yeah. You know, and, um, so in that sense, it was good for the Jews. <laughs> so that would be my first level very quickly about in terms of my dreams for the, mm. for the people that it continues to be safe. If we go to higher levels of imagining, when we go to Maslow's levels of, um, you know, dignity and self-actualization and all of those grand things, um, I'm tremendously nervous about the cost of Jewish education. Um, I think that it's 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 such a a wonderful opportunity to 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 uh, be immersed in a world, uh, in particularly formative time in your life, where hopefully you get the opportunity to hear lots of different voices, have lots of different kinds of teachers, lots of Jewish friends. Um, you'll emerge from that, and you'll go off and you'll do your own thing. But to at least get the chance to and make those choices and you know for a period of your life to see things through a Jewish lens um, and then so that then you can be equipped to make choices you can't make a choice to do something unless you've been immersed in it mm. I mean you can't have an opinion about what it's like to be in love or or whether um, you know a good Hungarian kokosh chocolate cake is the best you know <laughs> out of all of the other Eastern European you know yeah. desserts you can't do that unless you've tasted it and you've you know you've immersed yourself in it um, so I'm concerned. I'm concerned, and I think that um, there will we will have to have some very very creative conversations at the point where people are no longer willing or able mm. to make that enormous sacrifice to send their kids to school. Um, so I guess that's one of my dreams that it continues, or that it is and may in the future be something that is not only attractive but feasible yeah. um, to an increasingly wider um, percentage of the community. Um, beyond that, I guess um, one thing that I love about Melbourne and once a person's travelled, this is confirmed, because we're in the middle of nowhere and we're small and we're the ninth largest community in the world, seven-ninths of world jury are spread between America and Israel and those final two-ninths, we're, we're the, mm. the, you know, those communities are the ninth largest in the world, but we're still small because the first two communities are so, so big, large. Yeah. Um, and what I love about that is whether I'm at the butcher, in one voice, concert in the park, the local mikvah, walking down Carlisle Street. I rub shoulders with so many different kinds of Jews and I think that that stops, it thwarts the inevitable process of self-reinforcing mm. a, a very disparaging view of others. I love the fact that I can count as my close friends people from a range of different subgroups within the community uh, who wouldn't even call them subgroups because we are friends with one another. Yeah. And I love that, um, that that makes it possible. That's diversity, yeah. Um, well, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that I take their views as my own, but I know them and I know where they're coming from and I think that it's much easier to teach about them in school. Um, I think it's easier to encourage people um, to like what they're doing on Facebook. Mm. 
um, so that they can hear that there are other ways of being. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a, a fundamental concept in the Gemara, Shivim Panim La Torah, which doesn't mean that the Torah literally has 70 faces, but it means that there are many, many different ways of looking at it. Um, and that um, diversity, um, you know, within a, within a frame of something reasonable, um, is um, not only acceptable, but, but highly encouraged. Because otherwise, how do you find your space? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you. I want to um, talk to you about, I heard you speak passionately and inspiringly uh, about organ donation before, uh, which I know is something that's, that's very close to you. Can you firstly just give our listeners an insight into why it's such a personal and um, important issue for you? I, I had a transplant close to four years ago, uh, double organ transplant. I was up for my 100,000 kilometre service and had some pretty important parts replaced. And um, I, I honestly think it would be a very rare and remarkable person who would care about this unless they were personally involved, unless they were watching someone that they cared about dying, mm. unless it was them themselves. Um, in Australia today, there are approximately 1,600 people right now who are dying or seriously, seriously ill as a result of um, an organ that is not working or eyes. And without organs, we still are not at the stage technologically where we can whip up a spare part without a donor. I think that, uh, what's, I mean, let's talk very quick statistics so that it makes sense. I mean, most people say that they don't have a problem donating. The thing is though, that if you imagine the, scenario, the donor scenario, a person has died suddenly in a hospital setting, the family are told, by the way, this person is a donor. How do you feel about the idea of, you know, handing over their bits? And with the trauma of the sudden, mm -hmm. And they're in brain death, they're lying there, they look like they're asleep, they're peaceful, like they don't look like they're really mm. dead. And suddenly the family or, you know, very, very close friend, whoever's there, is presented with this, do you assent to this, um, to this donation? Most people say no. Mm. Well, a lot of, a very high percentage of people yeah. say no. Uh, but if a person has actually gone on the list or discussed with that family member, it's actually much more likely that they agree to the donation. And by the way, once a person's agreed to a donation, they can save or improve the lives of 11 people if you consider mm. all the things that can actually be, you know, someone with Crohn's disease can receive an intestine. You've got heart, lungs, kidney, spleen, skin, bone marrow, eyes. Um, you've, got a, you've got a huge amount of, um, I didn't say liver, um, yeah. a huge amount of, um, of bits that can actually be used to really transform someone's life. Um, they're now doing liver lobes, so you can actually take a part of the liver and give it to a child, the other part to an adult. Wow. So you've really got a, a huge amount of people that you're saving. Um, and I think that, you know, people having the conversation with a relative and saying, hopefully I wear my bits out, but if I don't, I'm just letting you know now, those are my wishes. Struggle with it and honour my wishes if mm. it ever happens. Um, those, seven, those 1,600 people on the list are likely to die unless their, um, their organs aren't, uh, unless they receive something that will save them. And, you know, if we're going to put it in a purely economic uh, perspective, up the road here is Malvern Dialysis. I mean, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to maintain someone on a, on a dialysis machine uh, to do what a itty-bitty little kidney can do. Yeah. Um, it's much cheaper in the long term to give them the transplant um, and then send them off not only to uh, pay taxes and pay off their transplants, uh, but go on giving yeah. and being productive and having been in a hospital that was ready to go you know the surgical teams are there the clinical team everyone's ready to go all they're waiting is for that not magical but that that, yeah, that wonderful moment that one where saving. one person says okay 
you know, it's, it's quite a wonderful moment. It was your mouth smelled a few years ago when I got the phone call, you know, and, and you go into the hospital and suddenly the hospital is not a place where people are constantly saying no. It's a place where people are saying, um, let's get you prepped and ready to go. Mm. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful moment to realise how good people are. And when you consider that moment and that pain for that family, it's quite a remarkable thing. So I did write a thank you letter um, through Dynat Life. So I don't know who my donor is um, but um, I wrote a thank you letter to the family. And uh, what they wrote back is, I mean, just, just imagine the Nachas mantelpiece where mm. your parents have the photo of you as a child, then they've got you the first year in your school uniform, maybe mm. then they've got your graduation one and, you know, nudge, nudge, they've got you with the beautiful wife and the child. They've got, you know, they've got your timeline in, yeah. in, 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 in prizes and, and certificates all and glory, yeah. all of the, the glory of Dean from zero to however long. And at a certain point, that person's life was, was ended and they said that they placed my thank you letter there. Wow. And, you know, it, it gave me chills. I got it every on Kippur, so you can imagine how, you know, it's a very, very emotional experience. But, you know, they, for them to know that that person's life has not entirely ended or their capacity to change the world has not, entirely, um, uh, has not entirely been taken from them for them was a source of comfort. We don't think of the family of donors, um, the survivors and um, their feelings. I met with a woman in parliament when we both addressed the Minister of Health a few years ago. And she spoke about her 17 year old son who died of a brain aneurysm. And um, you know, she said that uh, there's tremendous comfort that she constantly gets knowing that there is someone out there who is able to live and that it wasn't, you know, she didn't give it to them, she gave to humanity and then humanity downloaded it from whatever cloud that Donate Life has and handed it on. And it's, it's, a, it's really a remarkable process. Why do I talk about it? I talk about it because I'm extremely grateful. Mm. Um, I didn't think that I would talk about it. I don't define myself as a survivor. If you ask me the top 10 adjectives I use to describe myself, I don't, I, being a, an organ recipient isn't there, mm. although I am a card-carrying organ donor. Mm. Um, it's, um, but it's, it's very important. So when I'm asked to go to the Austin to talk to people who are on the list, uh, to talk to children, whose parents are on the list or to talk to children on the list. Mm. Um, I, I won't say, unfortunately, I have that experience. I'm very much of the philosophy of Gamzul Latova. If it had to happen, I'm in a position now where I can actually um, advocate. Yeah. And I guess since I got to the stage where I realised that I was hoping to receive, I started going through the research process of how would I feel about giving um, because I felt a little bit funny about the idea of expecting someone to give to me but not really wanting to yeah. give to someone else. Now, that's not to say that I was going to bypass the, the halakhic questions that I was going to ask myself and ask and ask the experts. I wasn't going to say, well, I should be able to give because I have to receive. Yeah. I wasn't coming from that perspective. But after doing my research and um, looking at uh, some of the uh, rabbinic figures that I really admire and their rationale for the decisions that I made, um, look, if I'm dead, take them from me and give them to someone else who's yeah. going to make sure that I continue being productive, albeit in a modified form. Yeah. So what really strikes me as amazing about this is the capacity for for being in the position, um, I guess, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. You were you were a recipient mm. and it's triggered an, uh, an unbeatable level of empathy that you now um, advocate, you become a... a, a card holder um, yourself and, and what it's what why it strikes me so much is because sometimes it requires us to be in the position of someone who needs something in order to really understand and empathize mm. and it's such a powerful thing and in so many situations we can't we can't do that mm. 
people living in poverty overseas, refugees, all this. We, we unless we are in these situations, very hard for us to empathise. Mm. And in the work that I do, I struggle so much with how do we, how do we um, instigate that level of empathy amongst people? Is there something about this story that's taught you about empathy, that it's taught you about the power of being in somebody else's shoe and then being able to see, okay, wow, this is so crucial? Um, perhaps not from this story. I mean, it, I think that anything that I knew before, I just knew more powerfully when I came out of here. I think that in that sense I was changed, but I don't think in a profounder sense. Um, I was definitely more grateful for my family because they were very supportive and, and those very sensible friends who yeah. <laughs> who were just a rock of support. But I think that, you know, as I studied, uh, you know, I mean, you know that I'm a bit passionate about the Tanakh. I was I was um, curious about the constant refrain, you were slaves in Egypt, you were slaves in Egypt. But all the time we're saying, you guys authored the stand-up Haggadah, you'll know that. And I thought, well, why do we keep needing to know this? And almost in every single mitzvah, I mean, let's take this week's parsha, parsha mishpatim, it's one of the very few parashiot in the Torah that's, you know, a mitzvah mega mix, a whole lot of things crushed in together. You know, think about how the slave feels and free him in the seventh year. Let him go. Why? You were slaves. Now, you and I are not slaves. We have no concept of what slavery is. You know, maybe we've seen a YouTube clip that's made us feel disturbed mm. and therefore we don't buy from certain, you know, we don't buy certain yeah. sneakers or certain chocolate, yeah. you know. But um, education is the key uh, to at least on an intellectual level understanding um understanding someone else and i think if you learn the egypt story you then then you you understand what it is to be ownerless to to be a possession um and from there we are the tanakh expects us to be able to then extrapolate on i mean you cultivate that in your children from the time they're very young we saw a homeless man on glen hartley road we walked straight into the organic shop we saw straight afterwards and i leaned over the counter and i said to the woman there's a homeless man sitting outside your shop on the ground um, give me the biggest piece of high carb something that you have and give me some kind of um, something with vitamin C in it, some kind of drink. Um, now, I got my kids to order it. I gave it to them. I gave them the money to pay for it and they took it and I said, look in his eyes, smile at him. If he wants to touch you and, and, and say thank you and rub your shoulder or something, don't flinch. I said, don't matter. I said, he might smell, don't, doesn't matter, right? If he doesn't have a shower, he doesn't have a house, he doesn't have a shower. Um, you know, and not only did they kneel, I said, and don't hand to him from a high position, kneel down next to him. So there they were, two little kids in Kipot with Sitsit, and they, they walked up to him, they said, excuse me, they knelt down next to him, they gave it to him, and they said, thank you. And I mean, he immediately started eating, he was probably ravenous, um, and then I, you know, got them to give him space and walk away. Um, they wanted to come back the next day. They said, can we go down and help me check if the man's there? Wow. Um, and, you know, it starts from when you're really young. Yeah. If you see your parents going, oh, my gosh, the UIA forms here again, great. How much do they want from us now? Yeah. You know, you're giving your kids a clear message. Yeah. Um, if if you look at, and, you know, I, I don't look at that 10% of my income as mine that I'm giving to someone else. If I look at my income, or well, that 10% that I'm left after they've taken my taxes from me, um, if I look at that 10% as not mine, but um, I've been given it as a custodian, and I have the wonderful privileged position of being a giver and not a receiver, and I've got to try and find the best way to make that money heal the world, um, I've got to do my research. Mm. I've got to find out who, I mean, I can't help everyone. My husband and I usually choose three charities a year that we give the... Um, our millions <laughs> from being a Jewish studies teacher. But no, we, you know, and I think that if everyone is, is really, and we try and make sure that one is Australian-based, one is Israel-based, and the third one we 
bicker about until we decide <laughs> something for that particular year. Um, but I think that, um, you know, a culture of philanthropy, a sense of duty, I am obligated to you know, you and I were born into a community where there's a lot of institutions that have already, you know, the sacrifices were already made by yeah. our grandparents' generation. I hear stories of my, my grandfather used to come home from work and they, he would put his income on the table and they would say, how much do we need to live? The rest goes to the shops. Wow. The rest goes to the school. The rest goes to this that we're building. You know, when, I, when our grandparents get upset that something's, you know, why are you building a new institution, Dean? We've got perfectly good blah, blah, blah. They're saying that because they're, they're blood, sweat. Blood. And they really, they know sacrifice like we don't know. Mm. Because I think that, you know, the reality is we grew up and a lot of things had already been constructed. It takes a tremendous amount of um, humility and, um, you know, self-effacement to say, I will just devote my life to what someone has already built up. Mm. Now, there's a certain uh, benefit in doing that. There's a certain benefit in creating something entirely new, and I see a purpose for both. Um, but um, if we're going to create in the next generation or cultivate in them a sense of duty to charity, a sense of the, the beauty and the importance of self-sacrifice, that's not something that you, you start with stand-up when they're in their 20s and they've graduated from school. That that starts, you know, the second that you've got a little kid and mum's going to light Shabbat candles and they've got the JNF box sitting there and, you know, put a little bit in. But also not just that abstract institution that has a box and a click. I think when we donate charity, you know, through PayPal, mm. it's not as concrete when a child can hold on to something and personally give it to someone and see this person hungry. Um, I would hope that that was a profound experience for them. That's a it's a profound message, and uh, uh, listening to that was um, yeah, it was beautiful to hear an amazing story. Uh, a beautiful way to finish as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. I uh, can't wait to get this out to everyone. Well, there you have it. To all our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed it and got value out of it please subscribe and please share with your friends and family. We hope to see you back here soon.